I'm Deirdre Latour, and this is Flack You, a podcast I started to take the flack back and tell the behind-the-scenes story about the world of reputation and communications in a divided and digital first world. On this episode of Flack You, resistance is futile, the impact of technology on the world of communications. My guest today is a spirited, incomparable Addie Connor, the chief experimental designer at Decoded. Addie was also the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Social Code, a digital advertising company. So welcome, Addie. Thanks for doing Flack You. So before I have you jump in, I, the reason why we're doing this episode is I asked the communications community and PR community on LinkedIn, what was the number one topic that's affecting communications today that they wanted to hear more about? And it was technology. So you are literally the show that is most in demand that we're going to do on Flack You. And I think it's because really uh, people are overwhelmed and they're afraid to ask. You know, they're afraid to ask. Uh, Kara Swisher does this great thing on on her podcast about, you know, don't you ask me the dumb question, basically, right? So um, they're afraid to ask and they really want to understand what tech should they understand? Where is it all going? What capabilities should brands be building or acquiring through agency relationships or whatever it might be, um, or through people? And I think people are really getting to understand that resistance is futile, right? Like that the future is here, even though it's beginning, it's just beginning. Um, so that's really the purpose of of this episode. So let's just talk quickly about Decoded. So your partner in crime, Matt Redner, he's the founder of Decoded. And I just loved what he said or what's on your website, on the Decoded website, I should say. So I just want to read it because I just think it's really awesome. We believe that all ideas come with art and science standard, which, by the way, is a definition of communications, too, right? It's both art and science. Uh, Because each wonderful piece of work is a tangible KPI, complete with a quick turnaround in the parsing of the information. With billions of potential data points, we distill it down to digestible, actionable next steps that continue to inform the work, our team and yours. In the end, we believe change is necessary for success. Baseball has Moneyball, science has the scientific method, and now creativity has Decoded. I love that. So tell us about Decoded first before we jump into other things. Cool. So I think there's been a lot of talk about sort of art meets science. And in the ad world, on the creative side, there's this been this resistance, right? Like creative and creatives have really wanted to protect their art. And I get that because when people have thought about data coming into creative, it's been a lot of automation. You know, let's have AI replace our creatives, not respecting sort of the inputs that are going into it. So instead, we said, okay, instead of how can data replace creatives, how can data weaponize creatives, right? Like, how can we make creative smarter? Sort of that parallel to Moneyball is that Sabermetrics isn't changing baseball, right? Like they're not coming up with new rules for baseball. Baseball isn't played by robots. It's just simply giving us a data feedback loop to tell us, you know, who the right players are to put on the field and what plays are going to be the most effective and maybe even how to how to stand in order to maximize my swing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's those it's the combination that can make us smarter. And I think we're entering into this new world where there's so much more data. I mean, that's like 
so much, so much data. And a lot of the data is useless, but it's like, how do we use data to learn things that we never have before? And this idea of creative, you can almost extrapolate it into art. And I was like, well, nowadays we understand from the time that someone sees a video or a photo all the way through on their behavior of then what they did after that. Did that compel them to have stronger perception on the brand? Did it compel them to buy the product? Behavior attached to an impression was sort of a fascinating closed data feedback loop that now, if you set things up in the right way, you can actually understand the components that are driving different behaviors. So dimensionalizing the, the creative and art space and then supplying that data back in, in a way that's actionable and can actually sort of make things better over time um, versus just constantly guessing and relying on human instinct in order to create and make decisions. So that sounds super smart and really good for brands, but scary. I mean, it sounds Why a scary? little scary. Well, it's not, I think I'm relating it probably to the election, right? Sure. Like, because there is a correlation, or is there not? Is that is that a false leap? or? Yeah, I think, well, one of the things that, that the Trump campaign, I think, did do better than the Clinton campaign is take advantage of data and social advertising. So, I mean, Trump even did it in his own speeches, right? Like, he knew that if the crowd was fading, if he said, build that wall, that everybody would just, like, you know, cheer in the crowd. That's a data feedback loop, right? And it may be conscious and it may not be conscious, but that's the same data feedback loop that we get back from ads. So, you know, I think that they did, you know, a conscious, deliberate effort of setting up audiences, understanding all the different message treatments against those audiences, and then optimizing based on that. Um, the Cambridge Analytica data, not to like go down that rat hole, uh, but like so much less scary than the Equifax leak. Like it was 2015 data about like what boy bands people liked. Yeah. They used that data smartly in order to cluster and create audience segments. But honestly, you could have created just as good, if not better, segmentation using the data that Facebook already has and, and makes public through ad targeting. Yeah, I mean, so the, because the amount of data that Facebook, I mean, do they have the most data of any platform in the world, basically? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a competition happening. So Facebook, it wasn't until about maybe 2014, 2015, that Facebook, like, really, I guess, yeah, 2000, sorry, 2013, 2014, that Facebook, like, really understood what they had. They thought that it was all this social data, that likes and comments were going to be the signals that gave them an optimization advantage, that gave them signals that no other platform was able to give back from advertisers in terms of perception and intent. Turns out that didn't correlate to anything, unfortunately, like, not to brand effect, not to sales, like, likes, just didn't matter. But what Facebook did They make have, you feel good, but that's about it. <laughs> they make you feel great. Facebook's very exactly. aspirational, yeah. right? <laughs> um, People like me, yes. Totally. Yeah. Um, so they screw with your ego. Um, but what Facebook did have was a perfect understanding of who you were, right? Like that's how they started out is you had to be at a certain college and they you had to validate your true identity. Whereas even a Google, right, like they know what your Gmail name is, but it's still probabilistic identity. So Facebook knew that I was Addie Connor. So that was great. And then they started collecting this different information from me of my Facebook profile where it got really powerful 
is that now I can bring in data from all these other sources, financial data, whatever data you want, and join it back to me. So now they have a complete understanding of who I am. Where Facebook fell short was Google was holding all the intent data, all the search data, what people actually wanted. And Facebook just knew who you were. But because they knew exactly who you were, that was the key. Because people were starting to use not just their computers, but all these different devices. So everybody else was operating yeah. off of cookies. And they were guessing who you were across these multiple locations. And Facebook knew exactly who you were. Now, Facebook has probably one of the widest sets of data. Google obviously has an incredible set of data. Amazon, so much shopping data. <laughs> yeah, the purchase and data. Are you on Facebook out of curiosity? For... I'm on Facebook, yes. Yeah. I'm, I ask because someone that understands that data, data that much, I'm curious if they're on Facebook or just too scared of the data that they actually have to I don't have uh have much that's interesting yeah I, I always say the same thing I'm like okay you'll figure out I have a dog and three kids and what I buy I yeah. don't know what to tell you it's just uh you already know it anyway so, so you brought up cookie exactly you brought up cookies um just really quickly explain to people what cookies are and are is anyone still using them occasionally I still get pop-ups that say this you know we use cookies is that still a thing or oh, is that yeah. like yeah everybody still uses cookies cookies, but cookies was really your sort of like browser-based ID, you know, the stamp that was you in your Chrome browser. Um, but now, just because I'm swapping browser to browser, I'm going from my mobile phone to my tablet to, you know, my laptop, there is n like, there's no Doesn't way. Doesn't really help much anymore. Yeah. And I mean, you're sitting in front of the TV, like with your laptop and your phone. <laughs> um, right. So that just became sort of outdated. But yeah, I mean, it's still sort of an important tracking mechanism for the web. Yeah. So uh, so why do you, so let's go uh, into some other technologies and then we'll do some some theory and some philosophy, I guess is a better word. So voice. So what's happening in the world of voice and and are we just at the beginning of it or is it just a shopping mechanism right now? Oh, yeah. We're just at the beginning of voice. I mean, voice doesn't even have ads yet. Um, so voice voice excites me. It's already like a quarter of all mobile searches are voice, um, which is pretty crazy. It's like... What do you mean by that? You mean people asking for yeah, Alexa, Siri, find Siri. whatever? Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Exactly. Yeah. Because you can think about it. It's, it's cumbersome. So what voice does is it reduces a lot of the friction that it takes in order to type in order to find something. So it now gives you a mechanism just to speak, which we all do so naturally, right? So I can order a new, you know, new dishwashing soap in three seconds. I just tell Alexa to order dishwashing soap and she knows that I ordered Myers, and she's going to, you know, probably select lemon verbena and it's going to come to my door in two days. And that's awesome. Like I only spent three seconds doing this. I almost equate it like to early days when we all got like the AOL CDs at our house yep. and we were accessing the internet through dial up and making our inner, you know, our phone lines uh, busy. And all the brands were running TV commercials with their AOL keywords. Yes. That Amazon is starting, I don't know if you've noticed, in Amazon listings where they're starting to tell you the keyword to order something via Alexa. Oh, no, I haven't noticed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So brands, like, they're trying to figure this out because right now 
it's just all organic. I think Chobani did like a cool sampling campaign through voice, you know, allowing everybody to taste Chobani. But brands haven't quite figured out how to interact with it. And then you can create your own apps. Like, did you know that you can order an Uber via Alexa? I did not. See, I did not. Right now, all I do is Spotify. It's connected to yeah. my music, and that's what I use it for in the it's kitchen. It's like music and weather. And right weather, now. yes. Um, and timer. I love it for timer. Which is funny because in the internet world, usually it's gaming and porn that leads the way. But I don't know, like, <laughs> voice porn. Anyway, um, I digress. It could be. It could <laughs> be. In this case, it's, it's music and weather. And it's really going to be how do we progress? How do we build awareness for brands, building awareness around voice apps? Um, and then the ad space is going to be interesting, right? It's almost going to be like radio, like a podcast. Yes. And are like they gonna... 10 seconds or something yeah. like that. Or yes. and are they going to read two ads? Probably not. It could be a winner take all. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of a, a fascinating. I almost feel like what's old is new again, right? Like radio is still the largest, you know, reach of any media in the U.S. And yes. then... Like from an agency's perspective, we're all like very excited about podcast advertising, um, which is basically a new radio. And then yeah. voice is like the new podcast, so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so how? When do you think brands are really going to be able to engage in voice? Do you think it's it's starting now and starting trying to now. figure out? Yeah. Like because it's removing so much friction for the user. Like there's such a benefit there for the user, sort of thinking about where can I add value? Um, where can I reduce time? Um, is the biggest one for users and and really sort of allow them to optimize. I'm excited about it for continuity models. So for people that are trying to do subscription or reorder, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is just such an easy mechanism to make that happen. And it adds transparency into the process. So instead of you just like hitting my credit card, I'm able to have a little bit more interaction. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, speaking of shopping, what about AR and VR? Like AR for shopping is turning into a massive, massive sort of opportunity for retail, right? And, yeah. and AR for brands and experiences on site. And so where, what do you see happening in that space? Um, again, just allowing, allowing the user to have a more educated, immersive, profound experience with your brand. And for something like glasses shopping, right? Like it's an easier experience. If I can just simply see how I look with 10 different pairs of glasses and put it on a grid for yeah, me and that, let me... that scarf makes me look fat. I can let me compare to myself. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's awesome. I mean, ultimately, I think you'll, you'll sort of gauge this from, you know, a lot of my answers. Like, I have a very optimistic view on technology. I like to look for where can technology be good? Where can it help us? Where can it make all of my decisions more informed, um, better researched, uh, you know, better prices? Like you have now the ability to take in much more information much faster to have a more holistic view of, of what you're trying to accomplish. So it's really the power to the shopper. I mean I think it's so. it's the the shopper has if you learn how to use the technology and know what your is the opportunity is, you get a lot more power. And the kinetic and the competitive advantage to brands who can figure out how to give users what they want. I mean, ultimately it's a brand's responsibility 
to have a positive relationship with the customer and to understand what motivates them and to tailor their messaging and experiences to meet the customer where they are along that customer journey and to, you know, get them to be able to buy. So it benefits, it's mutually beneficial. I always think that if you can understand your customer and you can build the best experiences for that customer, you're going to have the highest conversion rates, you're gonna have the highest ROI, and then that changes the economics of, of your marketing strategy. And what do you think about B2B companies? So if you're not selling soap, and you're selling, I mean, I used to work at GE and we sold jet engines, right? Yeah. So in is there a play here also for just reputation and brand awareness and just ways that people can use the technology to build the reputation of the brand? You know, the, these brands, these B2B brands are really critically important in communities because they employ a lot of people, they have factories, but they're just not selling widgets. You know, have you thought, have you guys thought at all about that or do you have any clients that are not consumer clients? GE is a client. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, again, with, with some of this technology, what I like to avoid is when you have a hammer, everything's a nail, right? And just going and saying, I can I can build this technology is different than saying that this technology is correct for what I'm trying to accomplish. Like, you don't want to be you know, leading with the technology and then retrofitting the idea, mm -hmm. right? It's you're trying to solve a problem and what's the best possible way to solve that problem. So is that the first question you ask? What problem are we trying to solve? Yeah. What's the KPI? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, that's and the, the rest falls from the there, not the point. other way around. Right. Totally. Like that's that's the basis. You're trying to accomplish something. Um, and then how how do I best go about that thing? So if I'm GE, it may be connecting with the community and, and getting more more B2C or whatever it is, like, you know, developing little windmills. Um, but we're to like technology democratizes the ability for people to interact with it, right? It's going to democratize education, healthcare, all these things. So maybe I want to give everybody, I'm SpaceX, and I want to give everybody the ability to go and tour my, my, you know, my rocket ship. I could do that with VR. Um, if GE, even for B2B, wants someone without having to fly on site to, you know, experience yes. one of its jet, jet engines. Yes, or, the know. majesty of it without being, you know, yeah. right next to the jet engine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then so it's, it's that combination um, of that virtual experience with, you know, the, the real real world. Experience. Am I right to, to I, I feel like VR, though, has actually been slower on the uptake for companies. I know there's been a lot of experimentation, but like have consumers really gotten it yet or no? We're still kind of in the early phase of it. Everything's slower. Okay. And you think VR is okay. a perfect one though. Like what happened porn, to Google porn, Glasses? Porn, porn you know what I mean? So. <laughs> uh, is where, where VR is, is yeah. going to start. And then how to do it, I think with VR, you know, Facebook um, uh, just came out with, with their first like headset. Um, and trying to like the two hundred dollars, trying to sort of bring that to the mainstream. I think we're still far away from you know the headset that all of us are going to wear every day in our living rooms. Um, New York Times tried to do like the yes. the glasses, yeah. but 
it isn't in everybody's hands yet and super accessible for everybody. So it's still, you know, a little bit niche. But I think I'm curious if you agree that there's no downside for brands as long as it's answering the right question like we talked about. Right. Mm -hmm. To trying any of it. Whether it's new, whether it's fully sort of integrated into society or not, right? There's zero downside to trying stuff as long as it works for your brand. The only downside is the cost, and I think yeah. that's where like brands need to sort of take a more nimble, agile approach. Like, for instance, on the creative side, brands used to just go. You know, they might do some offline focus groups, um, but then you're like straight to production, right? And you're just, you know, with this sports analogy, you're taking a half court shot and you're going to learn in six months to a year, did you make the basket? <laughs> um, nowadays, because... Which seems like you must be, might as well be 10 years. I mean, that seems like an eternity now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so now... Just with how fast you can get data back, we're trying to think of what are these new ways that we can learn and get signals that ultimately will correlate to that big production shoot. So how do we how do we prototype better? How do we focus group better? How do we do all these things like super fast, but mostly using sort of this digital environment where it is a lot cheaper, there's more scale, and the data is just a lot more perfect. It's so easy to do A-B testing and everything now, right? And you can yeah. change things literally, what, I mean, almost daily, right? If something's not working and the feedback is not what you want. Yeah. So, you you know, you don't need to build this big thing. Like, you know, people used to even do it with apps. They thought it was field of dreams. Like, they'd spend a million dollars building an app, and then it was like, if I build it, they will come, and then they never and came, they don't. and they thought yes. it was a failure. It's like, how do you align, how do you align an idea with distribution and come up with some sort of MVP to just to start testing. Like, don't, no analysis paralysis, like, mm. don't overproduce, don't overcomplicate it. Just do something. Right. Just try it. <laughs> yeah. Just try it. Get some data back and iterate. Like, sort of that adder, additive uh, or agile iterative model, test and learn is where I think most brands are at least trying. To yeah, know. I'm smiling because in, uh, Jeff Immel, who's the CEO of GE uh, until about a year ago, we used to bring him these wacky ideas, Beth Comstock and team, and we'd bring him these wacky ideas and he would, stuff he didn't know about really, and he'd just go, just try it. Yeah, try it. See how it goes. Like that's exactly the kind of lack of analysis you almost want, right? Like you just want, let's try some things and see which one works. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and what about, so bots? Bots are like uh, really terrifying, right? So I just... Depends on the bot. Well, I, I <laughs> so recently... Tack bots. <laughs> Zignal, the data company, the, the CEO, Josh Ginsburg, came out and sort of made, put a little bit of terror into the uh, hearts of reputation people mm -hmm. at companies saying that bots, the bots that sort of target the political world are actually now actively targeting the corporate world and going yeah. after reputation. So if you're Starbucks and you have an issue in your Philadelphia store tied to race, there's going to be bots that come out and amplify that to such a degree that it becomes a much bigger issue than it would have been, I don't know, three years ago, something like that. Is that, I mean, is there anything to do about that? Or is that just life? Or how does that, I, I don't even understand really who's at what service these things exist, you know? It's kind of funny, right? Like they say over 50% of the internet is now bots, um, which, 
Yes, if if you put it that way, where you're, you know, where it's like there's these things and we don't know where they come from and they're amplifying things, like that's it, the Deirdre overly simplistic <laughs> version of it. Like <laughs> totally scary. Yeah. yeah. Well, you could tell I'm scared. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I think that yeah, like I mean, Twitter this past week or. Never mind, not this past week. Twitter, just in general, that's been something that they're highly focused on, right? Like they just cut, I think it was like 14% of all accounts um, were bots. And so... Which I think that's good though, right? I oh, think I think it's a good great. move. Yeah. Well, it's a reaction. Like a lot of those bots, the account bots, were coming out of this world. Like in 2010, we all thought that... not. Or a lot of people thought <laughs> uh, that you were building communities on these platforms, right? Like that on Twitter, I was building up all my Twitter followers. And on Facebook, I was building my Facebook fans. And these were my customers. And I was going to communicate that with them on a daily basis until like smack algorithms, time and space, like can only fit so much content in your feed per day. Like platform's going to choose. And all of a sudden, I'm only reaching a couple percent of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of those bots, the account bots were just fake people in order to pump up your follower count and, and look good, which some people say is a strategy. I, you know, would say real people are, are always but It's a better. bad strategy for marketers. I mean, it doesn't I help you so. if you're a marketer because it's it's if you're trying to target people, you're not targeting real people. I think so, but it's vanity metrics, right? Like, talk to someone who's releasing a movie and ask them if they're comfortable having only seven fans on their Facebook page even still. Um, there is some social proof that comes from it. Yeah, and desperate times lead to desperate measures. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, these people are like, I'll just pay $10 and get a whole bunch of Indonesian teenagers. And at yeah. least I'll have a number that people can see. Yes. Um, yeah. If I were the platforms, if I didn't care about money, I would have just taken that number away so that people didn't even see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would know how many followers people have? Yeah. Because... Yeah. <laughs> Why do you care? Yeah, well, because it hurts It hurts or helps your ego, especially exactly. if you're a celebrity or a politician or something like that. So, yeah. um, but, but, I mean, there's, there's bots that do lots of things. There's bots that, that do attacks that are constant, and that's why you have to enter in your CAPTCHA. There, it's, yes, bots are a problem, but bots are reality. And, you know, some people say that in 10 years, the internet, there will just be internets that are run only by bots. So we also need to embrace bots. Like, I love messenger bots. <laughs> mm-hmm. Literally messenger and Facebook, you mean? Yeah. 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 And, and just in general. Yeah. Um, so, like, the ability to ability to use bots for, for efficiency, to, to perform actions that... There is a good use. There's definitely yeah, a good use. Yeah, you are an optimist. I love this. <laughs> so, um, what about... So, so, big data in general. I mean, I think, you know, in the spring... People both were in awe of Google and the sort of AI personal assistant that they unveiled on stage, the assistant that called a hairdresser so cool. and said, you know, I'd like to make an appointment for Deirdre. And can she guess she can do three o'clock? And it even said things like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, things that are very human. And so there was awe and wonder, and then there was a whole lot of fear, right? Like it's and ethical questions. It didn't say, "Hi, I'm a robot calling for Deirdre." It didn't. So, so it, you know, I think that <laughs> the AI space is just so d- massive and awesome. I mean, there's so many amazing, <laughs> positive to to be the the optimist because yeah. you're rubbing off on me. 
applications like in healthcare mm-hmm. and right. I mean, there's just so many awesome positive applications. The question is, can we are people ethically going to manage it the right way? I guess, right? I'm it's I'm asking you as a question, but yeah. So we're not we're not so far off from each having our own personal assistant that does everything for us. And just, you know, buying decisions. Now, I'm a very good comparison shopper, right? So I can go onto the web and I can research and find anything and get the best price. It takes a lot of time. I can just literally give inputs now to an AI or I will be able to in the future, like with even more complexity to say, find me, you know, the best camera under $200 that takes really good video and has a battery life of at least 10 hours. Whatever. Like, whatever my requirements are, and AI will be able to find that for me. <laughs> um, like, yeah. It's incredible. I mean, I, I love thinking about I've been learning a lot about Kickstarter lately, um, just because I think it's like a really sort of like closed loop creative and fundraising process. Um, So I could say to my, you know, AI interacting with like 3D printing, I could say I want to develop a new type of mug and I want my mug to, you know, have keep things, be able to keep things warm for at least eight hours. I want it to be this color scheme. And it can literally make my product right there. Um, so from the entrepreneurial standpoint, I just see this as just opening up the possibilities for everyone. Um, but I get it. I get that people are afraid because it's moving so fast. I mean, this is Moore's Law. Like we are on an exponential curve that we've never been on before. And the unknown is super scary. Like, I was giving the example the other day, Dolly the sheep, when we cloned Dolly, like, everybody thought, like, humans were next. And that didn't happen. Then Deep Blue, the AI chess, became the chess champion. Everybody was like, AI is now smarter than humans. But today, it's actually the combination of AI plus a human that's the chess champion of the world. So it's like, instead of thinking about how this is going to replace us in the same way of how I've sort of thought about creative is like, you know, not how AI replaces creative. How does AI just simply make us better? And also, I hate doing mundane tasks. So how do I use that in order to eliminate the stuff that I don't need to be doing that can be automated that, you know, and can be done So in theory, better. humans could achieve so much more if you're not. I mean, if you think about the the amount of time you spend on crap every day, or maybe that's just me because I have three boys yeah. under the age of eight and under. But uh, the amount of time you spend doing stuff that's kind of a waste of time but has to be done, someone has to do it, right? Is that what you mean? You can yeah. just change that dynamic. And we're just in the first hour of this, or the first minute, actually, in terms of what AI can deliver. And we, you know, in 1810, 84% of our country were farmers. <laughs> Right now, it's two percent. It wasn't that long ago. It's not that long ago. Um, so, when we think about sort of this next frontier and how humans are going to interact with the workforce and jobs, you know, there's a lot of talk about a living wage and things like that. Um, that jobs are going to go away. 
Yes, a lot of jobs will possibly be replaced, but if we're democratizing and education is free and healthcare is free and everyone is able to have access to this, um, that only sounds better to me. What I saw in the industrial world is that there are actually a lot of jobs, right? There are people that are always looking for, it's all about skill and yeah. retraining of people as the technology evolves factories are not going to run the way it's the same as the farming point is the way factories ran in 1810 or whatever so but to me the the applications for healthcare and for education and things like that are just massive right which i think is what sundar prachaya google really hyper focuses on autonomous cars are going to be 10 percent of the cost of having a car today you know and then you just get to like chill in the back (laughs) Yeah. And have that time back. Yeah, um, yeah. If you love driving a car, yes. I'm sure that there will be places that you can go to drive your car. Yes. Just like, you know, if you love horses, you can go to a stable yeah. and ride a horse. Right, right. Um, so what are people – so let's talk about change in general. I mean, we talked about a bunch of different technologies, but what do you think people are – afraid of like what what is you know in life you can either run to fear or you can run to love not to get too overly philosophical on you but so fear is such a dominant force in everyone's life even if you pretend it's not Mm -hmm. humans are just afraid of things and change is the biggest reason for that right you don't leave a job because you're afraid of what might happen because you're used to the job you're in you know so how does that from a technology standpoint like how do you kind of wrap your head around that like you you clearly embrace change and possibility easily everyone is afraid of what they don't know um and afraid of being irrelevant and afraid of getting left behind um and you even see it like facebook is even modeled out every time they make a major change on the platform how long the backlash is going to be oh is that right (laughs) Yeah. yeah I mean, it's it's predictive. Yeah. People, do, how, do you know how long it usually is? I, I don't have that number. Yeah, no. yeah. Like, people's reaction to change and that backlash that occurs is predictive. It's normal. It's part of our nature. But it also, historically, progress means being more open, being more inclusive. Um, over time, if you look at just how we've made progress as a society, it always trends to, you know, just an, a more open mindset, more inclusiveness, and a more forward-looking view on things. So I worry about people that resist change because you are going to get left behind. I think that in this world, because of the competitive advantage that technology gives you, because, you know, my computer can, you know, compute things so much faster than I do. It can make, you know, hundreds of millions of decisions per second, right, versus me. <laughs> um, why wouldn't I do that, right? Like, why wouldn't I take advantage of, of these yeah. things? Yeah. Um, so- and it's not just people that can get left behind. It's brands. Oh, it's yeah. It's companies. I mean, you'll see whole companies go away i think don't manage this totally with brands like the mentality that i see is that they're worried about going down right like that for them the worst thing year over year is not to stay the same but if they were to drop like that's the thing that they're the most afraid of so they'd rather just keep doing what they're doing right now than take a risk and but if you keep on doing what you're doing right now ultimately you're going to deteriorate 
and you're not going to learn. Like, the faster you get into things, the more data you're getting back and the further ahead of the market you are in just understanding the good and the bad of it and being able to iterate and optimize. Yeah, a big reason for that in today's world is it is absolutely brutal to be a public company. I mean, the short-termism of the market is so brutal. Yeah. Be, you, you, investing money is going to hurt you from a margin standpoint or revenue standpoint. or And there's zero tolerance in most cases for that, for the companies that have been around a long time. There's, you know, the FANG companies. There's the handful of big technology companies where they say, oh, Amazon can spend as much as they want to spend. And they can buy Whole Foods and everything. And they're not going to make enough money, but that's okay. But that's like literally five companies. So the whole rest of the world is worried about taking risks because you actually have to give to get. Yeah, well, I mean, Netflix, they're not immune. Netflix sl- slowed user growth and they just got slammed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. Yep. Twitter stock got hurt by scrubbing out the bots, which is crazy because those weren't even counted towards MAUs. So I don't understand that. It's like a yeah. totally good thing. I yeah. Think that... It's not always rational. No, it's yeah. not always rational. Information just moves so fast. Yes. Like, there's no news cycle anymore. It's just immediate. News minute, yes. And... On the stock market, talk about bots. Um, yeah, that's it's true. not it's not people that are that are trading and making these decisions. It's it's algorithms. Yeah. Um, so when you're, you know, that's just a reality. And I think ultimately, some of the some of the best CEOs, some of the best companies, just say, "I care about my shareholders, but I I'm a." A long run company, you know, I look five, 10 years ahead. I'm not operating in this, you know, one month, even one year window of valuation. And trust me. Yeah. But it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> you got to be a big leader. You have to have a bit of a track record. And yeah. so, what's your, what project are you most proud of? Do you have a project or two or, you know, I know most it's hard to pick your children. Proud but... of. That's so hard. I guess, like, so. One of the ones that is just the most memorable to me is when I was in when I was a senior in college. Uh, I'm dating myself, but it was, this was in 2004. I wrote my econ thesis, asserting that the vi- invisible hand, so Adam Smith, would move companies to be more social responsible because it would actually be positive impact for the bottom line. And my entire thesis it was the worst thesis you've ever read in your life. Like I like made up curves that I shifted around. It was all based on that really ugly yellow Lance Armstrong bracelet that I just saw that people were wearing this yes. like ugly yellow Live band. Strong. Yeah. Yeah. That they were paying money for. Yeah. And I'm like, company can sell anything if it goes to charity. So I, I made that my econ thesis. And then um, <laughs> and, but there's no data. At the time, and when I was first starting Social Code, this was in 2010, um, we got lucky. And one weekend, I was actually at my parents' farm in Vermont where there's no cell phone reception. And I all of a sudden saw, like, that I checked my email and it was like, call me. And I just got in this phone call that American Express was trying to launch a new holiday. It's like, wow, a brand launching a holiday. Small Business Saturday. Oh, such an amazing thing. It was awesome. Such an awesome campaign. Well, like, this was the first year of the campaign. And they, I won't tell you how many millions of dollars they had already spent 
But they had their whole thing was they were going to get a million fans and they had already produced TV spots that were going to run on Thanksgiving. Come follow our million fan movement. Blah, 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 blah. Let's just say their run rate after two weeks, I think they were at 180,000 fans. And in two, and they had already been advertising for a couple of weeks. And in two more weeks, they needed to get to a million. Wow. And it was not heading in that direction. So this was like one of the first campaigns that we ever ran as an agency. We didn't even have a website. Facebook was like slightly sketched. We had a Facebook page. <laughs> and um, so we, we take on Small Business Saturday and... The messaging, they gave us two ads. And I said, do you mind if we iterate on these? And it took a few days, but ultimately they did let us tweak all of the creative. And the ad said that they were going to donate a dollar to Girls Inc. for every person that signed up and followed the movement. So I was like, wow, I can prove my econ thesis. <laughs> yeah. And so I rewrote, I created controls of all the ads that isolated Girls Inc. as the charity, the dollar donation amount all these different things. And ultimately, what I was able to find was without the charity, it costs, I think it was between 6 and $8 at that time to drive a fan at that level of spend to get someone to follow a small business Saturday. That seems expensive. It was, but they were paying a lot more than that before yeah. it came on. With the charity, it was a little bit under $2. Wow. Because um, well, it was a purpose. Yeah. It gave a purpose. So ultimately, it was... You know, three to four X the cost to not have the charity in the ad versus have the charity. So I was like, well, $2 plus $1, $3, that's a lot less, even with the charity donation, right, than, um, than, not, than not donating. So they were going to cap the donation at half a million dollars. And I was able to present them the data that it was cheaper for them to keep on giving to charity wow. and to extend the charity donation yeah. to a million in order to sustain the campaign versus cutting off the charity and just giving money to Facebook. Wow. Um, so that was really cool. And it's interesting to you that it's interesting to me that that was that's now seems so long ago. Right. In the mm -hmm. scheme of how these things work and data. But it was so impactful for you because you saw the beginning of possibility, even though at the time you probably didn't even realize, right? And it was the power of creative, too. Like, it proved the, the charity angle. But I was able to isolate down to the verbiage of saying donate versus, you know, versus donating or, um, you know, Girls Inc., the charity itself. It actually didn't matter what charity it was. It was just that any charity would have would have been okay. Yes. Um, and so just collecting all this incredible So you could have done the Trump data. Foundation. That would have been... You could yeah. have done the Trump Foundation and it would have been good. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe I mean, not. Maybe not. Yeah. But so cool. So to be able <laughs> to be able to come back to a brand with an ROI positive story on a purpose driven campaign and then ultimately be able to create a holiday um, that still exists today. Yes. I, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you know <laughs> how many companies and how many brainstorms with how many agencies tried to. Re I want our version of Small Business Saturday, right? Like that's like it's it was so good that uh so before I let you go, you mentioned farm. I mean you grew up on a farm. Grew up on a farm. So how did you go from growing up on a farm what kind of animals did you have on the farm? Oh, I mean cows, Everything. chickens, sheep, horses, goats. So how did you <laughs> how did Addie get created? Like, were you on the farm and you were like, I'm just like super smart and really curious and you were dreaming of potential AI when you were like milking cows or what happened? 
No, I always had sort of two sides to my personality, like the the nerdy side and then the just like want to be in nature and surround myself by trees side that was always very conflicting. Apparently, when I was three years old, my my parents could give me mental math problems, like even sort of like longer division problems. And I would make this noise where I go, eh, 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 and then I would come out with the answer. You're kidding. <laughs> So I always had like <laughs> some inclination data mind to, towards yeah. towards math. I was lucky my senior I I never really I always did well at school, but never never because I liked it, just to get the grade. Like I would just I was a good test taker, you know, but like in terms of I wasn't really like passionate about learning the information. Books I read the first uh per, like the first chapter and the last chapter and could write a full essay. Like, I was that kid. Um, I used the same book report every year from ages, you know, fourth grade through eighth grade. Yeah. Catherine the Rye. It was great. Uh, but luckily, my senior year Not in high school. Not super challenging for you, though. <laughs> no, I took AP economics. And economics turned out to be sort of how I think. Um, so I was able, you know, to just use microeconomic theory and then statistics. I also took AB stats that year. And that was like sort of my aha moment of, oh, there's academic subjects that sort of are descriptive of my brain. Um, not that I still like got really into studying or anything like that, but at least like there was something that you was guiding your... my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> and that made my thoughts like more formed um, and academic. And then I growing up on a farm, like you don't really know about jobs. Like ever, there's like doctors and lawyers and then finance teachers. Yeah, teachers. Yeah, I knew I didn't want to be a teacher, so but you didn't know the range of things you could do. Yeah, so I went into finance and oh boy. god, what a disaster! Yeah, you don't seem like the finance side. <laughs> okay. it's, it's interesting. Your Terrible. brain, though, what you just described is really what you have to find for every kid. I mean, my oldest son is autistic, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the key with an autistic brain, which he's eight, so it's way too early. Well, maybe it isn't, but in our case, we haven't figured it out yet, is to find that thing, you yes. know, like whether it's like numbers or music or, you know, something that you're, is where your your particular brain kind of gravitates toward and then yeah. you're successful. Someone once told me something smart and I apply it to everything that, that I do, which is normally when a parent looks at a report card and the kids got like three A's, a C plus and a B, where do they focus? They focus on the C plus and they tell them to get that that C plus up. Yeah. You think of the marginal effort of getting a C plus to even a B? Yeah. That's really hard. Huge. Think about the marginal effort of getting an A to an A plus. Yeah, you can do it. And so in every like with any employee, I like to think about where can you be the best in the world and focus on that. And everything that you're bad at, don't worry about it. Be self-aware and hire around it. That's great. Well, that is an awesome, awesome way to end. So thank you very much, Addie. This is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.